hear that sound and you know what time it is. This is the sound of an uncertain future. Welcome to the Risk Topic Podcast. I am your host, Martin Rook, and this is the show that stands at the crossroads of science, technology, health, and society. How are we doing, ladies and gentlemen? You good? I'm good. And I apologize for there not being a show last week. I went back to Essex and I didn't take my microphone because my bag was full and I got a big microphone. Got the biggest microphone. It's huge. It's huge, mate. Um, yeah, so I popped back to Essex. I didn't have my mic and I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to subject you guys to a podcast that was recorded using the internal microphone on a laptop. That is just absolutely terrible. So I thought I'd, I'd save it. Plus, anyway, if I had recorded the podcast last week, I probably would have just spent ages talking about the new Alien movie, which is absolutely amazing. There's very few films that actually try and get fear right. And this very much did. You know, there's, there's such an undertone of dread that rises up throughout the, the film. And then you get these sudden explosions of fear being acted out on, on screen. They are absolutely amazing. So what have I got for you this week? I've got a good show. I like this show. And, you know, speaking of fear and speaking of dread and stuff like that, there is probably nothing that is more terrifying to a parent uh, than the thought of them uh, getting sick getting hurt and something along those lines and obviously when it comes to illnesses we have been blessed in the west with having an awful load of medical breakthroughs in the realm of vaccinations you know the diseases that afflicted those who are probably in what their their 60s now you know measles mumps rubella even older diseases like you know smallpox cowpox are almost completely eradicated off the face of the earth i mean it's eradicated pretty much in the west um, and for the rest of the world, you know, they are taking steps and measures to fully eradicate these diseases. However, one of the hallmarks of living in, I guess you could say, a postmodern society is that people have become relatively uh, distrusting of authority, distrusting of, of scientists who are very often seen to be arms of authority, medicine, politics, very, very closely intertwined. Even it comes down to the fact that people really don't trust even corporations, uh, you know, corporate biotech companies uh, to be able to produce good products. If you look at particular bits of research that look at people's trust in science and scientists, people are way more likely to trust academic institutions, university scientists and their research than they are to trust corporate scientists and their research. And all of this really culminated in the big MMR autism link scare that took place, where was it, late, late 90s, early 2000s. And that really did shake an awful load of people up. It made them start to question vaccines because, and this is this is the thing with, with technology, and it was one of those things that people have seen again and again and again. We thought it was good. We found out that actually, no, there is something to worry about. Now, this wasn't the case with the MMR autism link. You know, that was that was made up pretty much on falsified data. But it embedded that seed of doubt, that, that little strand of dread into the head of parents in that we don't fully know what we're sticking into our kids. Now, me personally, I'm all for vaccines. Go for it. But I can understand it if a parent was to sit there and say, look, I'm a layman. I am not a scientist. I work in a bar. I work in an office. I work as a waitress. You know, I've got my kid and I am 
trusting the authorities to tell me that what they're putting in my kid has absolutely zero risk. And when you look back over the history of, I guess you could say, blending the family with healthcare, it hasn't been wholly trustworthy. Uh, trustworthy. Look at flidamide, for example. That was a drug that came out. People said, yeah, this is going to be great to, to help morning sickness. Nah, led to deformed children. More recently, you know, we've got the contraceptive pill. People said, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to fully liberate uh, women's sexuality. Yeah. And now we're also starting to look at the mental health effects that the, the combined pill seems to be having, you know, really bad mood swings, uh, high rates of depression, stuff like that. So again, you are having a person, you know, not just a woman, could be a parent, you know, both of them, both parents together making a decision, but they're, you know, they're sitting there saying, there's this thing that we're putting in our kids that could potentially lead to something that might not be life-threatening, but would severely impact their quality of life, something like autism or other deformities, uh, you know, a la thalidomide. Now, of course, there is the counter-argument there that, well, if your kid does catch these diseases, does catch measles, smallpox, the Black Plague, you know, whatever, it is going to leave them absolutely devastated. You know, it is going to ruin their lives a whole lot more than this potential risk of maybe possibly developing autism or something along those lines. And maybe they are correct. Maybe people have been led down this uh, route of sort of false security in relying upon what we know as herd immunization, which is where, you know, a vast number of the population are immunized to a particular illness, which prevents that illness from spreading to other people. So let's just let's just take, for example, a school. Um, school roughly about a thousand pupils. You know, that's that's a good, nice round measurement. And let's say 950 of them are immunised against measles. So that means there's only going to be 50 kids who could possibly spread measles from one to another, and they may very well be spread across all the years and in all different classrooms and in different sets for English, math, science, whatever. So the chances of them coming into contact with, if there was one with a carrier, the chances of that carrier coming into contact with someone who they could spread the disease to is really quite small. But again, what this speaks down to is the voluntariness element of accepting risk. And it may be that in the minds of parents, their child contracting something like measles is a much more acceptable risk because it's seen as being wholly more naturally occurring, if that makes sense. Sort of down to a natural law of probability. The same as walking out and getting hit by a car. It just happens. It is what it is. However, agreeing, providing your consent for a doctor to inject something into your child, something that you have very, very little idea what it is. And if that particular substance was to have an adverse reaction with your child and they were to be left maimed for life, that comes down to your decision to put your child in that particular situation. And I couldn't even fathom the guilt, the, the, the self-persecution that a parent who thought they were doing good by their child and ended up putting them in severe harm, what they'd be feeling. So when it comes down to understanding why some parents might not want to vaccinate their children, yeah, I can fully get it, even if I don't have kids myself. But now what we're seeing, given a globalized world, and also given this lacking trust of, of vaccinations over the past few years, is that we've started to see the resurgence of particular childhood illnesses 
like measles, like tuberculosis and things like that. Things that in the West we thought it we'd gotten rid of. And of course, this is leading public health officials to start to worry. You know, their job is to keep people safe and healthy. And of course, they decided that the best thing to do is to make vaccinations compulsory and to try and fine people. Headline from uh, from the BBC News, Italy makes 12 vaccinations compulsory for children and Germany vaccinations fines plan as measles cases rise. Now, these are just a, a couple of proposals put in by particular European governments aimed at addressing the, the, the following illnesses. Polio, diphtheria, tetanus, hepatitis B, hemolyphus influenzae B, meningitis B, meningitis C, measles, mumps, rubella, whooping cough, and chicken pox. And will I sit there and commend the public health officials of Germany and Italy for trying to be proactive in addressing this issue. They are being relatively authoritarian about it. It was suggested that in Germany, the punishment for not vaccinating your child would be about 2,500 euros, which is roughly about 2,200 pounds. Now, the reason they state that these particular steps are necessary is to combat the, the, the false information put out by anti-vaxxers in that, you know, there is a link from vaccinations to autism and, and things like that. So let me get this, this straight. If you have a population of parents who are not trusting the government, who are not trusting officials, who are not trusting experts, the best thing you think you can do, right, is force them using the power of the state to vaccinate their children. See, this is what I love about scientific communications, right? People sit there and think, ah, oh, if you just if you just tell people the facts, they'll immediately get it. No. That's not true. You have to reframe the facts in a way that allows people to understand it. So if you sit there and say, well, vaccines work, just vaccinate your children. You're not listening to the concerns of parents. And the concerns is we can't trust you. We can't trust the elites. We can't trust the scientists. Hell, we can't even trust the bankers to look after our money. What makes you think we're going to trust scientists to put something in my child because right now that distrust of vaccinations is far more resonant with people than just simply believing the experts so what should be done as opposed to forcing poor struggling families to do something completely against their wishes or face a fine well um a media blitzkrieg. And I think this is one of the biggest tragedies about not producing a load of TV culture ourselves, or rather, you know, the most entertaining TV culture coming from America, in that you can't put in the public health messages that you want to into your country's own media. I think for the UK, our country's media is what? EastEnders. I don't watch that. Do we have a strong media presence that would allow some arm of the public health authority in England to sort of sit there and say, okay, look, we have X hundred thousands of pounds. We want to address the issue of vaccinations. We feel that there is so much misinformation being pumped about va vaccinations that we are willing to put on a BBC docu documentary drama about vaccinations. Why not do it about Jenna? That would be fantastic. The guy who essentially cured smallpox by testing it on himself. Why not put out a call, a pa call to papers for comic book artists, comic book writers to create stories 
regarding public health concerns and epidemiology in the UK. Jon Snow, for example, not that Jon Snow, the Jon Snow who actually knew stuff, you know, taking the handle off the pump in London to, to look at the outbreak of cholera. Great story. We just don't hear anything about it. It always seems to be that, you know, we come from a tradition where we trust the government and we trust authorities, or at least that's what those in power seem to believe. And what we seem to be doing on the streets is actually separating ourselves away from that trust. And those in power have not realized it yet and they do not know how to manage it. And again, there are, there are those people who are celebrating these things, you know, as if to sit and go, ha, take that, you anti-science people. You, you enemies of today, the person who I have decided to demonize through no other reason other than the fact that you don't perceive the world exactly how I do. And, and don't get me wrong, I've seen many tweets, many Facebook posts supporting these things, supporting forcing the citizenry to do something that they may have been misinformed on, but they just don't want to do. Those people who get angry at anti-vaxxers, and who demonize and, and castigate them as being anti-science. Please stop. You are making it so much worse. You are becoming a foil for these people to argue against. You're becoming something that can be constructed as the bad guy for them, the same way that you're constructing them as the bad guy for you. Rather than working towards creating something positive, creating that dialogue, creating cultural products where people can sit there and go, okay, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I was a little bit misinformed about vaccinations. Rather than creating products to sit there and go, if you don't vaccinate your child, you are a bad parent. Without that positive scientific message and those who are proponents for vaccinations, those who are proponents and on the side of science, taking blows on the chin, all you're going to do is validate anti-vaxxers even more. Not only that, you are going to give people who want to make money from being anti-vaxxer personalities, you are going to give them the ability to do so. It is so easy, so, so, so easy to make money from your opinion on the internet. Might not be a lot of money, might not be a living, but you can make money from it. And all you have to do is sit there and go, trust me, I know what's best. I'm not a scientist. I am a parent. I am someone who cares. Listen to my logic and compare that against the people who are sitting there telling you that you're a bad person for not vaccinating your child. They're the evil ones. They want to put this horrible, nasty stuff in your kids. I want to give you a nice, normal, natural, organic life. And at the same time, you get countries like Italy making vaccinations mandatory. You're getting countries like Germany who are considering fines. All that's doing is adding ammo to these personalities to sit there and say, ah, look, see, look what the government wants to do. They want to take your kids. They want to put this in your kids. What else does it do? Does it make them more docile? Does it make them more likely to listen to authority, to not be the free thinkers that we value so much in society? Are these vaccinations actually something else? Is it lowering the, the testosterone of our men, making them more submissive? Is it raising the testosterone of our women, making them not want to have children? Ah, see, my friends, listen to me, because I am the voice of reason and logic. I am not a scientist. I won't tell you how to live your life in accordance to this corporate government agenda. No, 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 no. 
listen to me because I am truth. And like I said, going back to the beginning of this segment, I can't blame people for believing that, for believing the the soft-spoken, charismatic voice that pertains to be some sort of truth teller in an age of uncertainty, when we have lost confidence in our institutions, both religious institutions, governmental institutions, even, you know, scientific and corporate institutions. It almost seems to be that modern society has become hyper-individualized to the point that we go, we need something, we need a life raft, and we don't have those scientists on screen. We don't have those personalities based in science on TV, on YouTube shows, anything like that to sit there and say, it's okay, don't panic. I mean, the whole, the whole point of Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, you know, don't panic that message has been lost. And instead, people seem to be more willing and, and more ready to listen to those voices that are happy to sit there and say, panic and listen to me because I know the truth and my truth will set you free. Anyway, speaking about truth, next segment, we are going to be talking about Donald Trump and this parrot climate change accord thing that he decided to to drop out of. Will this be the end of the world? Well, if we survived the Aztec end of the world, this won't be the end of the world either. See you in a minute. And we're back. Back again with my incredibly strong coffee, which has given me all the power, all the hype to sit here in a room that is absolutely sweltering. It's one of the worst things about recording. You've got to, you know, lock up all the windows and, and doors to stop any sound from traveling in. So uh, it, it gets it gets quite warm in here. And, and speaking of warmth, climate change, eh? Oh, that climate change. To be honest, I think I looked forward to climate change more when it was global cooling. Like the whole idea that the world is just suddenly going to get a whole lot cooler. What was it? It was that movie, uh, A Day After Tomorrow or something like that. Just a snap freeze, froze everything in place and killed everyone. I like that. I prefer the cold. This heat can surge right off. Although you can tell how Essex you are when it's really, really sunny and the first thing you think is, right, I need to take my top off, go buy a bottle of Corona and a pack of 20 Sovereign. Go sit in a park for about half an hour. Now, there is the tendency for when a person doesn't quite toe the party line on climate change to, to sit there and say, that, ah, you're a climate change denier. Um, and that, that party line is... Sort of roughly along the lines of, oh my god, the world is heating up, everyone's going to die in like 10 years time, this is such a, a huge major important problem, and we need all the green technologies, all now, to be honest we needed them like 10 years ago, let's all blame the oil companies. Just, just keep throwing money at climate change until it goes away, keep throwing money at solar panels and wind farms until, you know the polar bears stop dying or some shit. And this party line is so reinforced and to talk against it is seen as heresy. So, so allow me to put my position down. Climate change is a very real thing. Humans probably aren't helping matters. We're, to be honest, we're probably making it worse. We're probably speeding climate change up beyond its natural pace. However, I think we don't quite know what steps to take in order to address climate change or rather we don't seem to understand the length of time needed and the sacrifices that will be needed to tackle something like climate change so when someone like donald trump uh president of the united states leader of the free world pulls out of the 
Paris Climate Change Agreement. People on the internet lost their collective shit. They, they, they went nuts, to be honest. And you do have to sit there and wonder just how much of their collective outrage is based upon a, a reasoned and pragmatic approach to tackling climate change, and how much of it is based upon them just simply not liking Donald Trump. How much of it is partisan, and, and how much of it is personable. And again, you see memes on online that demonstrate this, uh, this, this lacking trust of elites and lack of trust in authority and in power that we saw in the previous segment. You know, you have people sitting there saying that Donald Trump is in bed with big coal, big oil. You know, he's got corporate ties. He dismantled the EPA because he wants to sell the land off to open up for fracking and, and all of these things. And it very much is this idea that there is no way you can trust those in power to set out and do the things that they say that they will do. However, I then have to ask, why do you have trust in a supernatural organization like the United Nations? I mean, what we've what we've seen, especially across the US and Europe over the past couple of years, has been a full-on rejection of the establishment. We saw that with the election of Trump. We saw that with Brexit. We've even seen it with uh, Emmanuel Macron in, in France. And he was presented as the outsider anti-establishment candidate. Heck, even Corbyn is being framed as someone who is anti-establishment, anti-elite. But it almost seems to be that the publics still want established elite oversight of something like climate change control. And again, this isn't to say that Donald Trump can't tackle climate change on his own. I mean, I'm sure that there is an argument to be made that as technology develops, the harmful emissions will be cut down. As there is more interest in things like greener technologies, more commercial interest there is in stuff like a lower carbon footprint, more organic foods, less greenhouse emissions, there would be companies who would be willing to change their practices to address these market concerns. And if not, there will be new companies being set up who will cater directly to these markets. And I mean, we see it with most of the oil companies in their own mission statements and, and things like that. You know, they, they sit there and say that they reinvest money into developing technologies. They try and lower their, their carbon footprint. And even on a smaller scale, look at the, the rising things like the acceptance in, in vegetarianism and, and veganism. People going vegetarian and vegan to try and limit their impact on the world. And obviously there are now restaurants, cafes, all of these things that are being set up to cater for that need in the market. And it almost seems to be too easy to sit there and say that a politician like Donald Trump, withdrawing from the, the Paris Agreement, means that he wants to destroy the environment. But again, looking at the, the actual raw politics of it, that doesn't make much sense. Someone like Donald Trump got an awful, awful load of support from, from Heartland America. People who do live in very close contact with the wilderness. Hunters, farmers, people like that. People who need there to be a, a clean enough climate in order to make a living or indulge in their recreational activities. People who, if they started losing massive swaths of land, would be less inclined to, to vote for Trump in the next election coming up. And as I've said in previous podcasts, we seem to be conflating the two issues of global warming and pollution. It strikes me as, as being interesting that 
There was a video from Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the old governor of California, the, the, the state of California. And he's sitting there and he's castigating Donald Trump, sitting there saying that our children will face a future of asthma and emphysema. But yet Californian cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco are some of the most polluted cities in America. And even under Schwarzenegger's tenure, there's been very, very little that's been done to tackle these problems. And sticking with the politics for a bit, it kind of does make sense at a political or supernatural, supranatural, supernational, that's the word I'm trying to say. It makes sense at a supernational level for Trump to essentially take his ball and go home. Because when we talk about nations failing to address climate change, global media seems to have a real big hard on for attacking America. When I last checked, America made up about 18% of global emissions, whereas China makes up over 30%. And then, of course, you get to the actual funding structure of the United Nations Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change. Within the, the introduction, the framework is designed so that wealthier nations, those nations with greater access to resources, subsidize poorer nations. Poorer nations who produce less emissions. If anything, it should be all nations subsidizing the nations who need it the most, which would be America and China. More funding for those countries to be able to instigate green technologies, to be able to limit their carbon emissions and develop the technologies that they need to. So if anything, Trump is trying to, if he was to stick with the Paris Climate Agreement, he'd be fighting the climate change war on, on two fronts, subsidizing global climate change initiatives, as well as trying to tackle initiatives on, on the North American continent. Not only that, he would be absolutely lambasted by global media for failing to reach targets, which he's gonna. There's very few countries that actually manage to stick and meet their targets while still being able to supply the demand of energy needed to the citizenry. And at the same time, China makes out like gangbusters. Very, very few people are interested in Chinese attempts to tackle climate change. And then, of course, the argument would be, okay, but what about the poorer nations? How would they be able to develop reasonable energy policies without extra funding being directed to them? Well, the argument there would be that as nations such as America and China further develop their own technology, that technology is going to become cheaper. There is going to be older technologies that could be exported to somewhere like India, somewhere like Brazil. Actually, Brazil's pretty green, which would be miles ahead of what that nation itself could actually produce and operate. So again, while it's easier to talk about the redistribution of wealth and the redistribution of, of resources to, to combat climate change, there appears to be little redistribution of responsibility. And it's actually quite sad when you see journalists jump, jumping on the let's hate Trump train because, hey, he wants to destroy the world, rather than actually investigating how the money is being used. Where is the money going that's been funneled through the United Nations? Is the money actually going to the initiatives that it says it's going to, or is it mostly just paying for bureaucracy? What specifically is being done to address the issues in supplying the level of energy needed cleanly to the countries who demand it the most. Because even then, one of the, the big concerns about the, the Paris Agreement is that there is no 
standardized mechanism for countries to produce their baseline emissions output. It can vary from nation to nation. And even then, there's no mechanism in place to ensure that nations will actively seek to lower their emissions. You could have somewhere that has reasonably low emissions and then instigate a 10-year program of setting up new coal-fired power stations, especially as Western nations are getting rid of that older technology. There will be southern nations who sit there and say, yeah, we'll buy that on the cheap. Doesn't really matter that it's more polluting. We get cheaper energy. Great. The price in coal is falling as people move towards fracking and gas and oil. Great. Again, you'll have these southern nations who are more than happy to buy coal that is in low demand and as such will have a lower price. Those nations will be able to increase their emissions output whilst not contributing monetarily to tackle climate change. If anything, they'd be receiving subsidies to tackle climate change whilst producing more emission. And again, we see this money being used to construct solar fields in, in the Middle East and stuff like that, you know, massive fields of solar panels, which is great, but that's not where the overwhelming amount of the emissions are. As I stated before, it comes from America, it comes from China, India, Russia, EU. These nations for years have been the biggest polluters, the biggest producers of greenhouse gas emissions. These are the nations who genuinely have made steps to try and improve their emission standards over the past 20 or so years at the same time as seeing massive increases in population. And again, while it's easy to sit there and claim, let's just all go to wind and solar, the ability to provide is not there yet. Germany, for example, has a very, very good wind and solar energy structure in place. But there are times when they are at an energy deficit and they have to purchase their energy from, from other nations at an inflated price. And then, of course, there are times that they have an energy surplus and then they have to sell it to nations at a drastically reduced price. And the end result is energy is simply more expensive for the average person. When I say average person, you know, the, the people earning, what, less than £26,000 a year? That is the median income, 26 grand. I mean, look at your own finances and sit there and say, how much more are you willing to pay to keep the light on? How much more can you pay to keep the light on for a little bit longer in winter? And this is the inherent difficulty with tackling something like climate change, trying to do what is quote unquote best for the world, whilst also maintaining a, a quality of life for your citizenry. And we see it in the UK when you know, there's big worries about fuel subsidies for old age pensioners. When we hear about, you know, old people dying and even kids dying because, you know, they can't keep their houses warm during winter. And everyone gets all outraged at things like that. But it is cheap energy that allows people to do it. It's cheap energy that allows them to, well, live. So it's very easy to sit there and write opinion piece headlines like Donald Trump poisons the world. You do have to sit there and ask yourself just how much of these headlines are designed to get people to click on them. Either because they want to sit there and revel in what that dumb Donald has done today. Or they want to get angry at what these leftist pundits are putting out there for their audience. We almost seem to have ignored the question of what are you doing to tackle climate change? And I don't mean that as in a, what are you as an individual doing? We, we had that rhetoric during the late 90s, early 2000s. And it's not that hard to sit there and see that while it was 
people who bought the energy saving light bulbs and only filled up the amount of water that they needed, companies and, and institutions and I lived across the road from the Guardian, I saw it, left their lights on all night, left computers on all night, you know, you'd, you'd go into schools, they'd be like, right, today we're going to teach you about climate change, you know, you should really turn your lights off, and you go, yeah, but you've got how many lights on throughout the day, they go, yeah, but we, we need them, all. we do, and it's seeing inconsistencies like that, that might lead people to start questioning the sincerity behind addressing climate change. But whether you're overreacting to Donald Trump withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, or you're overreacting to a risk that vaccines can harm your child, both of these speak to a level of uncertainty. We don't know what will happen. We, the average people who do our regular nine to five. Even the politicians don't really have an idea what they're doing. They're listening to experts who they just hope have the right position on things. And whilst even the experts are still trying to work out exactly what is the best foot forward, you have those media personalities who will happily capitalize on your fear, on your dread, and they will spin you a story that you want to hear. This is one of the big worries about doing this podcast, because I don't want to tell you what you want to hear. I don't want to tell you who the enemy is, who's doing things wrong out there, because for the most part, people are just trying to do what they think is right. Maybe they're a little bit misinformed, maybe they've believed the wrong people, but deep down, whether you're a parent who's thinking about vaccinating your kid, or yeah, you're the leader of the free world, contemplating the best way to tackle climate change slash pollution however you want to reframe that one both sets of people are trying to do what they think is best in light of not having a clear path forward especially at a time when almost every institution now is seen as corrupt every institution now is seen to be in it for themselves and all we hear about is the problems with the world rather than people coming up with solutions even if those solutions are tiny they're small they're, they're little things that, that will only impact the immediate area in which they live. And you know what? Maybe a world where everyone sits there and tries to improve their own little patch of earth. Maybe that's a world worth living in. Anyway, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. This was fun getting back to it after after two weeks. You know, a lot of coffee, a lot of hype. If you've got a mate who you think would also enjoy listening to this podcast, link it to him. Be like, I listen to this. Oh, I ain't going to be your friend anymore. <laughs> you know, back here you did when you as a kid. As always, you can follow this podcast on SoundCloud, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. All that good stuff. I have been Martin Rook, and I will see you all again next week.